everybody. We in Proverbs chapter eight. Almost at the end of section one. <laughs> so today we're gonna complete section one. Doing eight and nine. And next week we'll go into section ten. Which is to come people the part most people are most mostly think about when they think about Proverbs. A lot of those short pithy sayings. But even section two is broken down to a whole lot of pieces. Because this is a good book. So starting at chapter eight, verse one, let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, truly open up the eyes of our understanding. Help us to see and to see clearly, to truly know you more, to know you better. And give us understanding on how to navigate life, to truly hear your instructions and to yield to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here in chapter 8, we meet Lady Wisdom. Giving a final, well, one of the final presentations of herself. And in this one, I think I termed it her prowess. Wisdom is making her appeal about her prowess. And that's a word that we don't use too often nowadays. So, Google it. <laughs> Yahoo it. Duck, duck, go it. <laughs> Those are all different search engines. Yes, duck, duck, go. Yeah, so we meet wisdom and she's expounding herself basically on her prowess. So in verse, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Doth not wisdom cry? And understanding put forth her voice. She standeth in the top of high places. By the way in the places of the path. She cried at the gates. At the entry of the city. At the coming in at the doors. So this is wisdom. And here's again. She gives like a prophetic appeal. It talks about wisdom crying. Understanding put forth her voice. And so it's showing us what we saw earlier as we going through. That there is a, a unity between wisdom and understanding. So when we talk about wisdom, knowledge, understanding, instruction, all of those key seven words that we met in the prologue, all of those things are bound up in wisdom. And if you get wisdom, you have those things. So wisdom, understanding, crying and pouring forth the voice. Where is she crying? Says so she's standing at the top of high places. By the way, in the places of the path. So the high places were the places of worship. Where they meant to, to make their sacrifices. By the way of the places of the path. That's in the business sector. In the commerce. Where people are going back and forth on their way. Says so she standed. She cried at the gates. At the entry of the city. At the coming in of the doors. At the gates is the end. Like I said, the entry of the city. That's the passages in the city. But it also could be pointed forth to. That's where most of the. the the judicial or administrative work of the city went forth. So this is the places where the, where the, the heads and the leaders of the cities are. She's crying in the chief place of commerce. She's crying in the places of religion. All of these places are places where wisdom is crying out of voice. So this is where we meet wisdom. In all of these chief places of life in concourse. And verse 4 said, Unto you, O men, I call. And my voice is to the sons of man. So this is who she's appealing to. Everybody. Men. The sons of man. So she's calling. She's lifting up her voice. And this is her plea in verse 5. Oh you simple. 
understand wisdom. And you fools, be you of an understanding heart. So she's talking to men in general. And she specified the simple, that's the naive, the young ones. And her call to them is to understand wisdom. So she's calling them up from a place of simplicity to a place of understanding. And she appeals to here to the fools. And it's a final appeal she's calling out to the fools. So you fools, be you of an understanding heart. Having an understanding heart is the opposition of being a fool because a fool despises wisdom. A fool hates understanding, hates instruction. So in this call to a fool, she's calling them to repentance, to be something other than what you are. So she's calling one group to come up higher to a better, a different level of living. And she's calling this other group to change, to change their ways, to no longer be fools, to be you of an understanding heart. Stop being fools. And this is the appeal of wisdom. So she's in the chief places. She's crying, lifting up her voice, proclaiming, and she's appealing to men to come understand knowledge and to foolish men to repent, to be you of an understanding heart. And now she's going on and about to expound some of her characteristics, beginning with her speech or the purity of her speech. Say, hear you, for I will speak excellent things and the opening of my lips shall be right things. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. This is deep. And this thing going to get progressively deeper and going to cause us to think a little bit as we read through this. So she's causing him to hear. Why do he need to hear? Why do the young men need to hear? The simple need to hear. Said because because she speak excellent things. And that excellent things is noble things, chief things, things that are far above and beyond all the other things princely things, things of rulership, things that that, that that excel. So she speak in excellent things and my lips speak right things. So things that are acquainted with righteousness. This is her speech. So her speech is excellent. It is right. And her mouth shall speak truth. So she speak what is true, what is right, and what is excellent. Wickedness is an abomination to her lips. So wickedness don't even, her lips don't even like it. it her, her mouth can't stand wickedness. So her words going to be excellent, right, truth with no wickedness in it because her mouth can't stand it. Then she expounds further on her speech. And eight, all the words of my mouth are righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. So all the words, everything I say is pure righteousness. Nothing in them is twisted, perverted, or corrupt in any way. Everything is righteous, is true, is excellent. No wickedness, no perversion, no corruption whatsoever. This is the type of speech that wisdom says she possesses and why you need to hear her. Verse 9, she's still talking about her speech. Said, they are all plain to him that understand it and write to them that find knowledge. So plain means they're open. It, 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 they can be discerned. They could be understood to the folks who they have to understand it. So if you have an understanding heart, my words are plain to you. But what does that mean if you don't have an understanding heart? It's an enigma. It's a riddle to you. But it's open. So basically saying my speech is plain. It's simple. It's right but in your face if you got an understanding heart. Saying it is right to them that find knowledge. Those who find knowledge, these speeches, 
They're right for you. They're right there for you. You can possess them. Another way it could be right before you. This is things her speech is not hidden. It's not secret. It's only true. It's full of righteousness. It's excellent with no wickedness and no perversion whatsoever. This is the speech. That sounds like something we're supposed to be listening to, correct? And that's why she gives the call to hear. Pay attention. And then she amps up with instruction here. Say, receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. And there's a slight shift in tone here. So receive my instructions. So there's some instructions connected with wisdom and she called you to receive them. And that receive to take it in with the purpose of doing it, following behind it. So you allow my instructions to guide you. And you do that over silver. You get knowledge, not gold. Because wisdom, this pattern of life, wisdom talking about herself is talking about wisdom in the third person now, is better than rubies. And all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. So there's nothing that you could want that could be compared to Rubens. And we're getting a recapture of everything that wisdom has been telling us about themselves before, but in an expanded, more focused way now. So nothing can be compared to Ruby. All of her speech is plain to them that understand it. It's clear. There's nothing hidden or enigmatic about it. It's true. It's righteous. It's excellent. There's no wicked in it, wickedness in it. There's no perversion in it. There's no corruption in it. It's not twisted in any way. This is the speech that wisdom gives. So if we get these words, we get the pure, unadulterated truth that excels above everything else that could be presented to us. That's when you put it in a capsule form. That if we get wisdom, we get the pure, unadulterated truth that is only righteous, purely excellent. It excels above everything else that's around it. And nothing should be desired over it. And it goes a little bit deeper. Wisdom tells us a little more about herself. In verse 12, it says, Our wisdom dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. So I dwell with, I make my abode with prudence. That's discretion, a right living, a right judgment. So me, right judgment, understanding, I'm giving instruction, it's a recap recapitulation or repeating of all those seven keys that we met in the prologue of what we said this book was going to do and now wisdom is identifying all those things in herself so she dwells with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions that witty inventions is another way of saying of knowledge and understanding it's mental conceptions it's, it's almost like subtility uh that trickery, or prudent, another form of prudence, that basically craftiness of mind, when you can conceive of things in a way, in a crafty, in a witty way. That's what he's saying. Wisdom, I got knowledge of all that stuff. I give you discernment, and you can conceive of and not be tricked or duped. You have a craftiness of mind, a quick wittedness that can allow you to navigate life, navigate conversation, because I disperse all these things. This is what wisdom is. And it's like I said, it's a recounting of all those seven things that we got introduced to in the prologue. In verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Now, this one seems to be a bit out of place. Uh, She's been expounding herself about all these character witnesses and giving all these different synonyms of knowledge and understanding, prudence and righteousness, and she just throw in the fear of the Lord. And in this, she tells us something about the fear of the Lord. Said the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So if you do not hate evil, despise evil, loathe evil, you don't fear God. Because that is the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is knowledge, is understanding, and it's to hate evil. So if you truly fear God, you hate evil. It's something that you despise. But then she adds and extends on that. And when it said pride, arrogancy, the evil way and froward mouth, do I hate? So the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Then she gives you the list of things and she said, this is what I hate. So in this, her statement, she expanding her understanding of the fear of the Lord and putting herself as being the fear of the Lord. And if we think about it, we can think back to chapter six. And if we get the six things though the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And if we compare what she says she hate to that list, the lists are almost exact. Except this one is just a shorter list. You don't go through all seven. Pride, arrogancy, a froward mouth. I hate these things. So wisdom is now posturing herself as I am the fear of the Lord. So if you get wisdom, you have the fear of the Lord because wisdom is the fear of God. And if you have wisdom, you hate evil because the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So there's a disconnect between those who fear God and those who practice evil. Those who fear God does not live in evil because we can't stand it. We hate it. And wisdom herself is the fear of God. Then she's going to go on and compound a little bit deeper. In verse 14, counsel is mine. Sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. So counsel, that's that guide of instruction. Somebody to come along beside you and help you in the way. Like, that's mine. So there is no real and true counsel apart from wisdom because counsel belongs to wisdom. Sound wisdom, the firm and established way to navigate life, that's connected with that. That is hers. So counsel and sound wisdom belongs to wisdom. She is the essence of those things. Then she said, I am understanding. I have strength. So strength, understanding, counsel, sound wisdom, the fear of the Lord, prudence, subtility of mind, a quick wittedness. All of these are expressions of what wisdom is. And she only speaks truth. No perversion. Everything that she says excels any other thing around it. Wisdom seems to be pretty deep. You think wisdom seems to be a big boastful. You think she's making too much of herself. She, she, she putting it up there now. She hate pride. That deep. But wisdom is making herself up there pretty high. But she going to get a little bit deeper. Said so 15, by me, kings reign and princes decree justice. So those who rule, they do it by me. The ones who decree justice, princes, another word, or rulers, or chief people, they do that by me. I love them. I mean, by 16, by me, princes, rules, nobles, even all the judges of the earth. So everybody's in a that's in a position of authority, has that authority, and it can exert the authority because of me or by me or through me. 
So I give them the right to do what they do. They do what they do by me. Princes rule. They decree justice. Nobles, all the judges of the earth. So everybody that's anybody all over the earth, they can only be somebody because I am who I am. This is what wisdom is saying. She's making herself out to be pretty deep. So there's no true justice, no true king, no true ruler apart from wisdom. Wisdom allowed them to be what they are. And wisdom is the true execution of those positions. 17. I love them that love me and those that seek me early shall find me. So wisdom has a love for those who love her. Those who delight in wisdom, those who who, 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 who devote themselves to her. She said, them the folks who I devote myself to. And said, those that seek me early shall find me. Now that seek me early could be seen as idiomatic of this is the primary seeking of your heart. And I said, we use a similar expression now when, uh, when like most of you got your parents that fussed at you about something. Like, uh, you say, man, the first thing you do when you get up and get on that video game. Now, everybody technically know that's not the first thing you do because you heard them go to the bathroom. But you're saying that this is all you're thinking about. This is the primary thing. This is the most important thing to you. So the, the way your mind go when you wake up is towards this thing. And that's what she means by those who seek me early. That I am the primary pursuit of their life. I am the most important thing to them. The initial burst forth of their energy is put forth in me. That's what she means by seek me early. And so it ain't going that if you don't seek wisdom like before 6 a.m. that you can't get it. Because only those people who get up early in the morning... Like if I start seeking wisdom at 10, oh Lord, I'd have missed out. Huh? Seek me early. It's idiomatic or primarily that this is the initial thrust of your energy. This is where you devote yourself to. This is where the bulk of your strength go. That's what I mean. First thing in the morning. And those who seek her early shall do what? Find her. And we got this. This parallel again, uh, uh, this, what's, what's the fancy word people are? This paradox, that's what the theologians like to say. Again, because wisdom started off in this chapter, where was wisdom? Where were people at? What was she doing? Crying out, lifting up her voice. So if she where were people at crying out, lifting up her voice, why I got a seat for her? And, but this is the re- true relationship and it shows us how real gospel life is lived out. Where is God? Everywhere. And what does God do? He speaks. He sent out messages. He sent out prophets. He done wrote a book. But what do we supposed to do? Seek him. Seek his face. Go after him. And this show is not just a sit back thing. There is no apathetic Christians. If you're not putting energy or effort in your pursuit, you're not pursuing God. And there will be no prosperity in that because those who seek early are the ones who find. And early means primarily before and above any other thing. This is the thrust of your strength. And this is the way wisdom is found. So if you just got it in the back of your mind and you mulling it over, that, that ain't seeking it early. And you just assume, well, where's my dad? And I go to church and I do my deal. And one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be everything God wants me to be. 
that ain't seeking early. And so we have this paradox in there to pull us and it's this mutual pursuit that we pursue by that one. We pursue the one that is in pursuit of us. And as you go along in verse 18, riches and honor are with me. So where are riches and honor? With wisdom. Yea, doable riches and righteousness. Riches and honor are with me. So riches and honor dwells with wisdom. Then when he says that, yea, it could be even. It's a, a compounding, bigging it up. Uh, to, to, to expand on what I'm truly talking about when I say these things. And this is a part of the mindset in the mainframe we have to have, especially once we go through this next section of Proverbs, that we can't allow the idea that this is just a purely secular book. That we don't even know how it got in the Bible. But I guess because it mentioned the Lord. Because it's all about, there's no theological, a lot of people think that. There's no theological substance in the book. That it ain't going to enhance your understanding of God. Because all it's about is just encouraging you into a positive way of living. So they take Proverbs like a Joel Osteen sermon. <laughs> you, you can, it ain't going to hurt you. It can help you out in some ways. But if you really want the deep stuff, don't go there. And a lot of people have a problem with it because there are big promises. And we t- we hit on this a little bit. Riches and honor seems to be a bit of pretty big promise. It's like that stuff is with me. So if you got me, you got riches and honor. But he expands and say, hey, doable riches and righteousness. So what do you think you mean by doable riches? The ones that last. So it's gold and, and money. Do you think those are the doable ones? Like gold can last a long time. Hmm? You think that's the doable riches? The doable ones are the ones that last. Now, how long you last? You think so? Any of them riches last as long as you do? Think gold lasts as long as you do? But you're gonna still be living. So you think gold gonna still be living when you still be living? Gold gonna stop when you die. Ain't gonna be no more gold. <laughs> it ain't gonna be yours no more. But do you think there are some possibilities for you to have some riches that can go with you? It is? Would them be more doable than the gold that can't go with you? And it sounds similar to the statement where Jesus encouraged us to do what? He talks about stirring up treasure, stirring up riches. What he told us to put it at? Huh? Oh, girl, you ain't been reading your Bible. What he told us to put it at? Huh? He said that's where it is and told us to do something with it. There you go, in heavenly places. Store up treasure in heaven where moth don't come in and all of this stuff won't be corrupted. So Jesus had a mindset that there's some earthly riches that we can get that they're going to one day be corrupted. But what you really need to get is some riches that are going to go with you on the other side. So you put, you save up in now. You get a, a heavenly savings account. And here he makes a, 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 a reference towards that by the riches that are with me. Riches and honor, but yea, they're doable riches. So these are some riches that go beyond just the lifespan of gold and silver and all that stuff. It's some stuff that's deeper than that. 
And compounded with that deeper than just some honor and people liking you and you have some fame and they're making a statue of you is you get some righteousness. So there's doable riches and righteousness that's with wisdom. And that's the true riches that wisdom has to offer. So as we go through this book and as we see these promises of what comes forth, we have to see the promises beyond just the, the, the carnal mindset that I'm saying if I invest or use my money the way Proverbs said I'm supposed to use it, then I'm going to have a lot of money at the end of it. But if we run this through it rightly, if we invest and use our money the way Proverbs say use it, we're going to have some righteousness and we're going to have some doable riches that none on this earth can corrupt. Because that's what's with wisdom. And so that's the extension of this thing that yeah, it's doable riches and righteousness. There's a different kind of honor other than just people liking you. There's a different kind of riches and this is what you have in me. And with me, then he goes on. My fruit is better than gold. Fruit is what it produce. The thing that comes, the outcome of my life is better than gold. And it shows you that what wisdom is talking about in his riches is not gold. Because it's better than gold. Yea, then fine gold and my revenue than choice silver. So this is expanding the thought. So we cannot allow our mind to be blocked in to thinking it's just talking about money and getting rich. Because it's saying the fruit that I produce, the revenue, that's the income that is generated by me, what you can get in exchange for me, is greater than what silver can produce. What I produce in my life is greater than what gold produced. So my outcome, my riches, my honor, this endurable riches is greater than those things. Let me know it's not those things. In 20, it says, I lead in the way of righteousness in the midst of the path of judgment. So the way of righteousness, the pattern of life that's established by righteousness, that's the way that I'm going to direct you. This is what wisdom does. Say, in the midst of the path of judgment, I'm going to put you smack dab in the middle of judgment. That's sound decision and those things that are declared right. So you're going to have righteousness. That's the right pattern of life, sound judgment. The, the black and white, the, the, the concrete decisions of what is and what isn't right, you're going to be right in the middle of that. You're going to know it. And you're going to be on the right path of those things. This is what wisdom is promising. So wisdom going to lead you. Wisdom going to place you. Wisdom going to give you something that far exceeds any treasure this earth has to, to offer. Her speech is speech that is only true, that excels everything else around it with no wickedness or perversion in it. This is the wisdom that we're seeking for. And she is the equivalence of the fear of God. This is wisdom. And the reason I'm going to lead you in this path, verse 21, said that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance and I will fill their treasures. It's again deep. I will cause those that love me to inherit treasure. Now this one here, this first one, is a bit tricky. Because the word that we got in the King James that is translated as substance is a somewhat tricky word that I, I think the translator really didn't know what to do with it because uh, it probably just didn't make sense to them. Because the word here is really a, a, a being verb used as a noun. In other places, this same word is translated as are, is, to be, some places it's translated as existence. And so that's why they just went with the generic term of substance. You got to be talking about something. 
But when I, as I think on it and I meditate on it, I like it with that bird. And I take it as existence, as being, because she's going to cause us to, to, to inherit being. Like, how do you call things that be to inherit being? Because you have to be in order for you to inherit, inherit something. And that's why I think the translator play with it the way they play with it, because it don't make sense. Because you have to have existence in order for somebody to cause you anything. But I think if we have to expand our understanding of the Proverbs and the appeal of wisdom beyond just the concrete, the secular idea of treasure, I think she's making a plea similar to what Jesus made. Because just think about, put your mindset, we look at it backwards. Put your mind in the mindset of those who, who lived when Jesus lived. And he steps on the scene and say, I am the resurrection and the life. Like, hold up, how can you be a, a action? And how are you life? We all got life. And it's the same idea of that wisdom can produce in you a level of being that's different. So is there something that's going to be birthed in you? There's an existence, there's an expression that's going to flow out of wisdom that's parallel with you having a feel of treasure, an abundance of life. So there's an abundance of existence that flows through you from wisdom and he's going to cause you to be and fill you up with treasure. A treasure that's different than gold, a treasure that's greater than silver, a treasure that's connected with existence itself. Now wisdom is getting going a little bit too far. Because how wisdom going to do that? Now wisdom going to get off a rock a little bit deeper now. In verse 22 says, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. So I got to pause when I get here because the wisdom going to look crazy. When did God begin his way? Because if we track with the rest of Proverbs, the way is a pattern of life. Your routine, your day, your expression of who you are on a daily basis. That's your way. When did God begin his way? It's a legitimate question. As I said, he possessed me in the beginning of his way. And it's the same word that's used as in, in um, Genesis 1 and 1, the beginning. Reshit. So God possessed me in the reshit of his way, at the starting point, the beginning, the pinnacle, the zenith of his way. All of those are different ways beginning could be translated. Like, when did God start, like, living like God? Always, like, so, is wisdom here saying that God to possess means to take into ownership, to have in possession. So God got me once he started being God. Well, that don't make no sense because God didn't start being God. So how in the world he going to get something to start when he already been that? So is he saying God had me always? So I always been just like God. So is wisdom now equating 
herself with being eternal? That what you think? You get a little crazy, ain't it? Now, wisdom going to get a little more crazy now. Just, just watch what she say. Verse 23, I was set up from everlasting, from, be, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. So I was set up. Now, that one make it seem like something that was brought into being, right? Because it says set up. But that word could be, in other places, it's translated as poured out. Like, what is wisdom saying? And it's a, it's a, a poetic way of saying a fully manifested, of something that was fully revealed, something that was established. So wisdom saying, I was fully revealed, I was poured out, I was all wisdom from everlasting. So what I am now, I have been and revealed that from everlasting. So if you go back to everlasting, that's when I started being what I am. Before there was an earth, or before anything was, that's when wisdom was revealed as wisdom. Set out, poured forth, or put on display as wisdom. So God possessed wisdom once God started being God in the beginning of his way. Once he, before anything was, all the way from everlasting, wisdom was fully, fully set forth. Now wisdom going to get a little more crazy. In verse 24, it said, when there was no depths, talking about the oceans, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, very poetic. So when there were no depths, the deep oceans, the vast seas, I was brought forth. When there was no fountains abounding with water, the springs and all the other little small things that flow out, before any of that stuff was, I was brought forth. And that sounds like born, right? So I was brought forth. And that word brought forth here is a metaphorical use. It's not the literal meaning of to bear or to bring forth. The word means to twist or to thrive in pain or to shake it. And they called and a lot sometimes it's translated as to give birth to because that's what women go through when they give birth. But that's not necessarily the meaning of the term. It's basically to thrive in pain or, or to ache or to shake. So before it was, I thrived, I shaked, I, 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 there was some energy or some action in wisdom that was going on before any of this stuff was. The depths, the fountains. So I was, before the mountains were settled, before the hills were brought forth. So before God got the mountains where they're supposed to be, before the hills, that's the small mountains, before any of that stuff was. So we moved from the oceans to the land, the depth, the biggest depths of, of the sea to the smallest fountain, I beat all of that. The greatest mountain on land to the, to the smallest hill, I was before all of that. And he's giving this panoramic view of creation and saying, I preceded it all. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. So before any of this stuff was crafted, before God did any of these things, I wisdom existed. I dwelt. I was there. In verse 27, said, while he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the deep. So I was there. When God starts setting up the, the heavens, so he'd move from the earth to the heavens above, then he go back. When I set a compass upon the face of the deep is to draw a, cir- draw a circle upon or to architect a circular system. 
So a lot of people just put, take it as to be draw a circle upon because they don't believe that Solomon and them back in they they understood waterways and in the circuitry of the oceans like we understand nowadays. But I just think that's a little evolutionary pride that we smarter than them because we came later. That's foolishness. But the word could be taken either way. All it means to draw a circle upon. So he's saying he drew a circle upon the, God drew a circle upon the oceans. And when he did that, I was there. In verse 28, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep. He's talking about all, all this stuff. I was there when he established the, the clouds above. I was there when he strengthened the fountains of the deep. Are the foundation, are the fountains of the deep, that, that's the, the basis of the ocean when God established that stuff and got it where it's supposed to be. And it's to give us a little deeper picture because deep are supposed to understand the correlation between the, the clouds and the oceans. There is some. Because the clouds are formulated by the evaporation of the oceans, which expands them, and then they drop down to fill the oceans again. But that's a whole nother thing. We ain't getting into that. Because wisdom is, is pontificating about herself. 29, when this, when he gave the sea his decree. So when God gave a command to the seas, this is the command, that the water should not pass his commandment. So he gave a stopping place for waters and told you, don't go back, don't go no further than that. God did that. Wisdom was there. So when he appointed the foundations of the earth, so when God established the basis of this earth, the cross and the core system, all that stuff, wisdom was there. Then it get a little crazy in verse 30. It said, then was I by him as one brought up with him. Now, hold on. Right. Then was I by him. We understand that. So wisdom picture herself as being side by side with God while God doing all of this wonderful work of creation. But she said, I was by him as one brought up with him. How can you conceive yourself as being brought up with God? Now, that don't make no sense. When you think of brought up with somebody, what, what, what come in your mind? Yeah, y'all grew up together and y'all been through life challenges and all this stuff together. So there's a correlation or a parallel between us. You don't think about somebody who's ancient to you as being brought up with you. Like, I, I got this one auntie in my mind right now. In my mind, she been old since I was born. I'm like, from, from the time I can remember whatever the first, the first memory I have of her, she was old then. And I would never conceive in my mind saying, yeah, I'm saying I brought up with my auntie Betty. <laughs> Cause that don't make no sense. She brought you up. <laughs> You weren't brought up with her. So how in the world can wisdom say she was with God as one brought up with him? What in the world is she saying? What you think? She been with God from the beginning. Like her and God were little boys together. <laughs> Our little girls. <laughs> so you think wisdom think herself to being somewhat equivalent to God? They best friends? Okay. So that, 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 that's a bold statement to say. Like, I came up with God. Like, we, we, I, I've been here since day one. We came up together. <laughs> Ain't getting a bit deep. 
So wisdom is this picture that been with God, that was possessed by God since God has been God. And when God did everything God did to establish all the greatness of this earth, wisdom was there. Wisdom is the fear of God. Wisdom only speaks truth. Wisdom, her speech excels any other and every other thing that exists. Wisdom has the ability to impart existence and give an inheritance that's greater than any other treasure this earth has to offer. And she and God are homeboys. That's pretty deep. Then she said, I was brought up with him. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. That daily is his delight, meaning he took delight in me. So I was in a place where God was looking at me and being happy. And I was the joy and rejoicing of his heart. And it said, always rejoicing before him. That's a sense of like God was watching me dance. And he was getting happy and getting crunk off my dance. So me and God was together to a place where he took delight in me and I danced before him. And we've been like this since day one. Wisdom is making some deep claims here. Then wisdom get a little bit deeper. So now therefore, oh, 31, rejoicing in the habitable parts of the earth and my delight were with the sons of man. So wisdom says she was rejoicing in the habitable parts of the earth. The habitable parts of the earth is a redundant way of saying she rejoiced in the world. She rejoiced in the worlds of the earth. There's a, a literal translation of it. So the, the bringing forth of the earth, the, the place where men dwell, the world of the earth, that's where wisdom was. Rejoicing in that. And say her delight was with the sons of men. The sons of men is men. That's where her delight was. So she was delighting in the creation. She was there, a part of it. And she was in the midst of this, enjoying it and, and rejoicing in the whole scene with God, before God, as an equal with God. Only speaking truth, excelling everything that exists, has a promise of an inheritance that cannot be compared to and is the equivalence of fearing God and hating evil. This is wisdom. And so she comes to the results of the conclusion that we should draw based on this. Said, now, therefore, hearken unto me, O, o children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. So you need to listen because of who I am, because blessed are they that keep my ways. So the true blessed ones, the ones who truly are happy, the ones that have a real delight are the ones who keep who ways? Wisdom ways. So you blessed if you keep the ways of wisdom. Blessed is the man that heareth me. I mean, at verse 33, hear instruction and be wise and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. So this is the real blessed person, the one that hears wisdom. That here is to, to take your attention to for the purpose of doing what is said. Waiting daily at my gates. So what was wisdom when we met her? In the high places, at the gates of the city. And I'm saying this person is at wisdom house, waiting on wisdom to come out. It's a seeking and it's the mutual going forth that's going on that gives a duty to the to the, the beneficiary of wisdom. You have to seek wisdom. And that's why 35 said, because whoso findeth me, findeth life 
and shall obtain favor of God. So those who seek wisdom, who wait daily at the gates, who long to hear wisdom, to obey her, you find her. Wisdom, you find life. So wisdom saying she is life. And if you get me, you get life. And more than just life, you get the favor of God, the grace of God. You get a a place where God wants to do good on your behalf. Where he looks at you with an anticipation to work on your behalf. That's the favor of God. The grace of God. So you get life and you get grace in wisdom. But you have to search for her. You have to seek her. Then wisdom get a little bit deeper. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. So he that sinneth against me sinneth against his own soul. So if you go against me, you're going against yourself. You're bringing destruction on your own life. And all they, I mean, yeah, all they that hate me love death. You sin against me, you're going against your own soul. If you hate me, you love death. And so wisdom gives this, this, this black and white opposition. Either you with me or you against me. And if you with me, you got life. If you against me, there's nothing but death for you. If you with me, you benefit your life and you get blessings and prosperity and righteousness. But if you sin against me, you working against your own soul and you heaping death upon yourself. And that's the picture and the call of wisdom and wisdom to put ourselves all the way up there, y'all. See, wisdom pretty deep. But who else done told you that if you get them, you got life? He don't want, he said, I am the truth. I am the life. But wisdom said, if you find me, you found life. That's pretty deep. Who else did we know that was with God in the beginning? Y'all know anybody else? Beginning was the word. The word was with God, just like wisdom was with God and the word was God. So wisdom in her presentation has drawn herself out to an equivalence of being a companion of God and being one that has life and one that controls destinies and one that sits above everything. Now, we only know one person that can truly qualify to exert those characteristics. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so if we let this just sit for a minute. Who are we supposed to seek and seek with all our heart? Who are you supposed supposed to seek? You're supposed to seek the Lord. But why are wisdom telling you to seek her? Hmm? Go ahead. Oh man, y'all getting deep up up in this thing. In this picture of this lady wisdom that we've been drawn into a relationship with is not just an abstraction for metaphorical use, but it's this beautiful poetic picture drawing the son into a deeper relationship with God himself because wisdom as an attribute of God is an expression of God. And when we make it to 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. And he has become for us wisdom and righteousness. And there's this equivalence in the New Testament between wisdom and Christ. And Christ is the fount of wisdom. And Christ himself is wisdom. 
And that's the subtly presented here in the book of Proverbs. We get a picture of this wisdom. But you say, man, how, how can uh, wisdom be a lady? Because it's a full picture. And it's a teaching to a son. And the father is drawing his son to pursue this relationship with one. And so he presents wisdom as a relationship, as a woman, to build the full motif of an intimate relationship. Because he wants you to be intimately connected with wisdom. He wants you to find her, to love her and embrace her. And this one that you find and love and embrace is the one that is equivalent, one that is an expression of who God is. So in seeking wisdom, we're seeking God because Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is the one who's true, whose speech is always true. Christ is the one who excels every other thing. Christ is the one. By him, princes rule and have dominion and all these other things because he is the essence. And so in this quest for wisdom, we're not just looking for a skill in life. We're looking for an expression of God and, and for an intimate relationship with God. And as this full thing, and now this picture going to get a little bit deeper as we go into nine, we find wisdom at her house. And as a call to a banquet in verse nine, at chapter nine, verse one said, wisdom has built her house. She have hewn out her seven pillars. And this is like a conclude, conclusion to this whole section of the book. So wisdom has built her house. She didn't establish what she Meant to establish. And she says she has hewn out her seven pillars. Now for most people tell you that they don't understand what these seven pillars are. And to a, 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 a dogmatic detail it's not clear cut. But I understand them to be a reference back to where we started. When it talks about what the, our journey through these proverbs will give us. Wisdom. Instruction. Prudence. Guidance. All of these things, those seven key words that we run into at the beginning of the prologue has been established through these nine chapters up to this point. So all of these things and all of these discourses and all of these appeals and all of these admonishments was a building on those seven things. And he was trying to demonstrate and call you to live a life based off those seven things were all the true expression of wisdom. And so wisdom, she didn't build her house. She didn't hewn out of seven pillars. So he has, she have killed her beast. She have mingled her wine. She have also furnished her table. So we have, we called into a banquet. So she killed her beast. So she got the feast set up. She mingled her wines. She didn't got a punch and a drink set up. She furnished her table. She got it all decorated. So you got this big banquet hall with wisdom. It has this feast that's set up. So now that she got a banquet set up in verse three, she sent forth her maidens. She cried upon the highest places of the city. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanted understanding, she said to him, Come, eat of my bread, drink of my wine, which I have mingled. So this is wisdom. And set up her banquet. And now she sent out her maidens, her servants. And they're calling people to her banquet. And she's telling everybody to come to joy. And she called to the simple again, to him that wanted understanding. There's another version of the fool. All that could be the simple. She's calling to them and she's saying, Come, eat of my bread, drink of my wine, which I have mingled. In six, it turns from this call and this appeal to some commands. It says, forsake the foolish and live. Go in the way of understanding. So leave alone the foolish and you're going to live or in live. Go in the way of understanding. It's a call to life, a call to living. 
He that reproveth a scorner, get it to himself shame. He that rebuketh a wicked man, get it to himself a block. And it's part of this command. And it's the same thing that's been repeated. If you rebuke a scorner, that's the pride for the boastful, those who mock. So you're going to get shame. They're going to respond with ridicule. They're going to respond to trying to disgrace you and put you down. If you rebuke a wicked man, you're going to get a block. That's a bruise. They might slap you. They're going to be an animal. In verse 8, reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, he will love thee. So if he's going and, and now she's giving responsibility to those she called. Forsake, reprove. They said, reprove not a scorn, at least he hate thee. So it's a cautionary warning here. It's not necessarily a blanket, don't do it. When it says, least he, that's for fear of. So you be cautious. Don't reprove a scorn, at least he hate thee. So if you reprove a scorner, he gonna hate thee. It's the same, um, expression like Jesus used. When he said, judge not, least you be judged. It's not a direct prohibition against judgment. It's a cautionary warning. Like, don't go down that road unless you're willing to have this right here happen. So don't you go down rebuking scorners unless you're willing for them to hate you. But if you rebuke a wise man, he going to love you. And so there's this call towards this banquet that has increased to now some level of responsibility for the son. So what was being done to you, the rebuke, the reproof, the call out, now I'm giving you some responsibility on how to do these things. And it's a, a, a an increased level of responsibility to the son. And it shows you the progress and the, the maturity of the son. So he's not just the one being reproved and being rebuked. He has a responsibility to reprove and rebuke. And now he's getting trained on how to do it and the consequences of being that. Say, so give instruction to a wise man and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. We introduce to the fear of the Lord here in this appeal again. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Now in the last chapter, wisdom told us that she was understanding. So understanding is the knowledge of the holy. The fear of the Lord is the knowledge of the holy. So wisdom is the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the holy. And now we have a circle to where we've been in the last two years. If I'm seeking wisdom, I'm seeking what? The knowledge of the holy, because understanding is the knowledge of God. Wisdom is understanding. So if I get understanding, I get the knowledge of God. And as a picture that's put up, that wisdom is a full expression of the fear of God and the knowledge of God. And this is what we're in pursuit of if we pursue wisdom. Who's the only one that can teach us by God? Yeah, that's about it. And Jesus himself came and told us, "He is no man has seen God, but I declare him unto you. He the one that exegetes the Father. He explains God. That's what Jesus does. So he gives us understanding of the knowledge of the holy. In verse 11, why? said, for by me days shall be multiplied and the years of thy life shall be increased. So there's an increase to your life. There's a, a lengthening of your days by me. That's why I am the knowledge of the holy. I am the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of the holy, wisdom, understanding, increased days. I am all of those things. Say, if thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. But if thou scornest, thou alone shall bear it. So if you're a wise person, you know who benefit from your wisdom? 
He said, you do. <laughs> if you're a scorner and you live that lifestyle, you know who's going to bear the responsibility of your foolishness? You are. So if you're wise, you're wise for yourself. Are you wise to your own benefit? But if you're scorned, you yourself going to bear the results of your scorning. Where am I? Verse 13. Then there's a term. And we introduced to one last time to this foolish woman. So the foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knoweth nothing. So the foolish woman is clamorous. It's loud, full of debate, contention. She is simple, naive. She don't know anything. Ain't no knowledge with the foolish woman. If you're simple and you go with the foolish woman, you will increase being simple. Said so for she sitteth at the door of her house on a seat in the high places of the city. So she sitteth at the door of her house. And as a contrast to wisdom, wisdom comes out into the midst of the city. But she sits at the door of her house. But he adds to it in the high places in the city. So the door of her house is in the high places in the city, the same place as wisdom was. So her home is in these high places. While wisdom is coming to these high places to call people, these high places is where she dwells. And she says, and then she sit there to call passengers who go right on their ways. So we see a parallel between the opening of this chapel and its close because wisdom was out. She was calling and she was presenting. Now with the foolish woman, she's out and she's calling passengers who go right on their way. So these people going straight on about their business. She's out there calling and this is her call. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. And as for him that wanteth understanding, she said to him, stolen waters are sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So her call is, if you're simple, come over here. If you want to understand it, stolen waters are sweet. So the waters you, 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 you get through trickery and bribery, through death, he said, these, these are sweet. When you sneak off and get it without anybody knowing you took it, like that's the sweet stuff. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So she's calling you into a life Hidden in her house. So you come in with me. You eat with me. I got sweet and pleasant things that just going to satisfy your soul. That seemed to be fun. Huh? Hey. I enjoy it. Because wisdom ain't saying nothing about how sweet her food was. <laughs> she got sweet food. You know what I'm saying she got cakes and pastries and apple fritters and all types of stuff. Pies, cookies and everything. And it's going to be in secret. It's going to be hidden away. Ain't nobody going to know. And we see these contrasting calls. Well, wisdom is appealing to you based on her virtue and your need for her. While this foolish woman is appealing to you just purely based on your desire for pleasure. One is calling you to a high level of living. One is calling you to a base level of living. One is appealing to intellect. The other is appealing to emotions. One gives you responsibility. While the other tells you, man, it's all going to be secret and sweet. Ain't nobody going to know. And as these contrasting calls and these contrasting banquets that we're being called into. 
And then we get this final wrapping it up of this final banquet. He said, but he know it not. This is what the folks who, who, who respond to the foolish woman call. Say, but he know it not that the dead are there. Where are the dead? At the second banquet. And there her gates are the depths of hell. So the deep part of hell, that's her gates. Like the lowest of the grave that you can get down into, that's, that's where her house at. So this call to this pleasant thing, this call to these emotions and this sweetness and, and this pure pleasure is a call to death. While wisdom is appealing to your intellect and calling you to see virtue and to respond to it and to seek and to pursue but the end results of it is life. And we have these contrasts and feasts. And this is the end of this section. And it leaves the son now with a choice. What banquet will you go into? Whose appeal will you hear? Will you allow yourself to be taken in by your pleasure? To be taken in by your desires? To be taken in to where all you only do your things you do just because they feel good to you? Or will you forsake all foolishness and pursue one who is greater than any other thing? And there is no pursuit in the call to the foolish woman. You ain't have to go nowhere. Her house is in the high places. Now she's telling you to turn and come in. But if you go after wisdom, she's calling you to come. And there's some energy and there's some effort that required of you. One is easy and one is hard. One requires a change of life from you and one just allows you just to go on. And the choice is which banquet will we choose? And if we see this and allow this motif or this theme to be picked up on, the Bible opens our story of corruption with a meal and it ends our story of corruption with a meal. In Genesis chapter 3, what happened? Anybody remember? Huh? Go ahead and say it. Don't be scared. Why? By doing what? In doing what? Eating the fruit. A husband and a wife had a meal. That was the end result of all this stuff right here. They listened to somebody who called them to a banquet that the end thereof was death. But in the last days, we get this same picture. Once we make it to Revelations, we, if we believe we're going to be called to what? A feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And it's a time of celebration where we dwell with God in full unity and he adorn us with righteous robes that would never be corrupted. And there's this great feast that's going on. But there's also another feast that happened in Revelations. Right after the marriage feast of the Lamb, the Son of God come back in all his splendor and all his glory. And he calls, he do the same thing. He calls them people, but he don't call people. He said, hey, vultures, buzzards, all y'all come around because I'm finna fill the earth up with this, the bodies of the wicked. And there's a, a dual feast that happens. In this theme of a feast as a part of fellowship and showing your allegiance to a group is a biblical theme that tracks all the way through. Starting with the first bad feast, ending with the great feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And even when we get the new heavens and the earth, it talks about us eating and partaking of the tree of life. 
who leads shall bring healing to the nation. So this idea of feasting and this idea of fellowship is a, is an expression of allegiance. And when Jesus called those who come to him to be a part of him, what did he told them they had to do? Y'all remember? Like, if you don't eat my flesh and you don't drink my blood, you're not worthy to be a partaker of me. And he called them to a feast. A feast that we refer to as communion. And it is an expression of our fellowship with God. And so who we feast with, who we fellowship with, shows our allegiance. And now we have this dual feast presented here at the end of this section because unless the son choose wisely now, he will not benefit from the rest of the book because you have to pick a team. And in this theme of the wise woman versus the clamorous woman, the strange woman, there's a theme of intimacy that's, that's pulled forth. Because this father called the son to be in a relationship with this woman. And he categorized this strange woman as the adulteress. These are biblical things. Now what other time do you hear God calling people to adultery? Like when the children of Israel start worshiping for a false god, what do he, t- he say to them? Anybody remember? He told them they commit adultery. He said they're committing whoredoms. And it's the whole idea of their relationship with him being depicted as a marital relationship. So the underlying theme of these separating women is a separated life of devotion. Wisdom is equivalent with God. And if you come into a relationship with wisdom, you come into a relationship with God. But the strange woman is one who is all the places where God was, where wisdom was. That strange woman was there. And she has a call. So when we read in here and we see the physical relationship and the warning against adultery, those are true. But underlining in that, there's an idea of a warning against the adultery of the heart. Because wisdom is more than just a woman we pursue. It's a lifestyle we live with is equated with God. And this strange woman is is an allegorical depiction of a lifestyle of devotion, of one who leads to death. Who on the surface seem good, seem right, seem pleasant, seem sweet. But at the end of it is all death. And it shows to our devotion. And that's why when we read in, in what was that, Proverbs chapter 6, no, chapter 5 going into 6. When it talks about the results of if a man find his wife commit adultery. Like ain't nothing you can do to appease that. Because the jealousy of the man is his rage. And it gives you this picture of this one who goes to the utmost to pour out wrath in response to his wife being adulterous or somebody sleeping with his woman? Who is the jealous one who is jealous over your soul? God. Say, I am the jealous one. And so when we meet the jealous one in Proverbs, we meet with God. And when he gives these depictions of ain't no bribery you can give, ain't nothing that you can do to bring down his anger, that's what we should depict in our mind with God. This is the way God responds. And it'll help us understand when we look at some of these hard parts of the scripture. Because people be like, man, how can God be a loving God and he punish people and he hurt people and do all that type of stuff? And that just don't seem like love. Now, God forbid, if Brother Jay was to come home, and to find Madam Ebony with another man. And he jump in that Chevrolet and he drive it through the house and run over both of them. 
<laughs> Hitch dude up to the back of it and drag him down to our highway. You know one question we will not ask? Why he did that? <laughs> That's one question we won't ask. Because in the confines of that relationship, we understand jealousy and rage for a res- as a response to that level of unfaithfulness. So the why ain't a question. The only thing we would be saying, man, Jay lost it. <laughs> like, dude, man, do you see, man, dude's skin still on the road? But one question we will not ask is why? Because the why is understood and we expect that with unfaithfulness. And when God responds in anger, when God responds in rage, when God's pour down wrath and condemnation on people, the one question we should not be asking is why? Because we should understand that God was not just calling us and he's not just the option amongst many. He's the lover of our soul. And anytime we participate in anything contrary to him, we are committing adultery with it on him. We're being called and caught up into this strange relationship with this strange woman who is going to steal our soul. And that's the position that the son is in now. And that he has to make this choice. Where does your allegiance lie? And all of this was the unfolding and the calling of the thing of these things and these two women. One is life, one is death. One is anti-God, one is God. Who will we come into a relationship with? And if less you choose wisdom, you don't benefit from the rest of the book. And as we go into the next section, all of these things that we call these little short with the pithy saying, the proverb for a day type deal, they all are an expression of the outflow of this one choice. And it's teaching the son how to live out this choice. Anybody got any questions? <laughs>